in the sanctuary. And also, anybody that's been visiting with us over the past few weeks, first time is today, we welcome you, or a few months, and you want to get to know a little bit more about who we are as Gateway, if you're interested in being a part of our faith family here, we have a special time uh, next Sunday after church. We have a Discover Gateway lunch that is at uh, Pastor Grady and Julia's home. A time to come together and fellowship, have a nice meal, and then just kind of get to know who we are in our DNA. A little bit about um, just what God has called us to, our vision here in this community. And uh, it's the very, very first step toward membership. Um, it's just getting to know a little bit about us. So we invite you to be a part of that. We do ask that you register online uh, because they can prepare accordingly for the meal. So we do ask you to do that. Deadline to register will be this Friday, and that's also on the website on the news and events page. I'm going to ask one of our deacons, Mike Presley, to come up. He's going to share something about an opportunity for the greeting ministry. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So uh, with the new year um, comes some new opportunities for uh, volunteering here at Gateway. And uh, as far as the part of my role as a deacon, I oversee uh, the greeting ministry. So just wanted to mention a couple of opportunities we have. Um, just uh, just a way to serve, especially if you're not already serving. Recognize a couple, we'll put them on the spot, but that's okay. 
Dave and Theresa O'Meara are here. They, uh, for those that have been here a little while with Gateway, uh, this precious couple has been a part of Gateway for a long time. He was our chairman of Deacons, served faithfully in leadership. Theresa served in so many different areas of uh, faithfulness in the community and serving here at Gateway. And they just surprised us this morning. He's uh, down here at Maxwell doing some stuff for a job, uh, just coming in to do some consulting and stuff. Something Consultant's a good word, yeah. But they're in Kentucky now, but we miss them. We love them, and they just popped in, didn't even know they were coming. And so for those that have been in Gateway a while, you can go love up on them. Those of you that know them, we're just so glad you guys are here. It's always neat to see extended family return to just be a part of it this morning. So glad you both are here. Well, let's stand, and we're going to declare to the Lord together this, our heart of praise and preparing our heart to the Lord and recite this in unity. Uh, we're going to... Declare together Psalm 99, verses 1 through 5 together. So let's join in together in unison. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Let's worship our kings. Above the storm and throne. 
Let's just sing that chorus. He will hold me fast. And he will hold me fast. He
You do know the secrets of our hearts. Saying that we can't help ourselves. We all sin within us. Sin by nature. Sin by nature. And yet, Lord, before that, we were in bondage. We were hopeless. Despite our sin. For my life, you provide me with peace, with hope, with righteousness. Justice has been satisfied. You, O oh God, your hope is found. Thank you, Lord, for Christ and his righteousness we have in Christ. Father, your word tells us that we who are dead in because you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In you, we have redemption, the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. You've lavished on us the riches of your grace. We have an inheritance in Christ, which is eternal. And we have a promised Holy Spirit who abides in us, which is a guarantor of that inheritance. You will hold Thank you for being patient with us. You're so patient with me. You're patient with all of us. Thank you. Thank you for not giving us what we deserved in Christ. Thank you that instead of your wrath, you have poured out on us your steadfast love. with the world, Lord, I think of where we're missionaries. So many who are downcast and so many who are in darkness. We pray that the gospel would go into the ends of the earth that those who are darkness would see the light of Christ and that they would see Christ and know that you are the light of the world. Help us to be bold to share the gospel with someone today. And Lord, pray for everyone that's in this Who just arrived in Brazil 
pastors to go with them so that pastors from local churches would go into parts of Brazil that have never heard the gospel to try and reach people who have never heard the gospel before. Others would draw closer to our pouring into your community. We just pray. We thank you for your word that shepherds and disciples men that you would raise up in this body of believers. I pray, Lord, that you would bless that church and that congregation, that you would use them, that the gospel would go forth in their community. Lord, I think of many Christians here in our church, in our community, role that we have in ministering to other Christians. I pray, Lord, that they would know that you will give them grace to give them the energy and the strength that they need to still share this ministry with others. Restore those conversations and those intimate moments that, God, you would give grace in those conversations to restore and to heal. That there would be repentance, receiving and knowing that they individually are at fault. It's not the other. It's them. And that they would repent and turn to you. God, you would use that marriage and that these marriages in this church would reflect what its intent is, and that is Christ and the church. Because, Lord, you love us even when we fall and even when we fail. So, God, I just pray that you would build these marriages here up. And there are some who will be traveling soon to marriage marriage conference. I pray that that marriage conference would be so encouraging and that the individuals who go to get that training would come back and they would invest in the marriages here at Gateway. The marriages that are in need. So Father, thank you for what you're going to do. I pray for the offering today and thank you for those who have given. I pray, Lord, that we would be generous givers and that, Lord, you would take the money that has been given to this ministry, this church, and that it would go out and it would, you would multiply it for gospel purposes. And that your name would be exalted. Lord, for the preaching of your word this morning, we're so grateful for Grady and his preparation. And Lord, we want to hear your word. What a blessing it is to sit under your word. And we ask that you would anoint Grady even now as he comes and preaches. That Lord, you would capture our hearts with your truth. That we would have listening ears and seeing eyes this morning. And that we would leave here rejoicing and hearing your truth. So Father, I pray that you would bless now. Let us hear from you. Let us be changed by you. Let us be convicted. Let us rejoice in your word. May you be glorified in all that is said and done. In Christ's name I pray.
Kids are headed to kids' worship. If you will find 1 Peter chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're continuing our year long journey verse by verse through this amazing letter of 1 Peter. Now, while you're finding 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to ask you a question this morning, and that's simply this What are the sins in your life that you most struggle with? If you do some introspection and look into your own heart and your own life, what are the sins that you most struggle with? What are those things that you repeatedly do? but you know is inconsistent with God's word and God's will for your life. Perhaps it's in your actions, things that are visible and can be seen. Perhaps in your speech and the words that come out of your mouth. Perhaps it's in what we say and do, but perhaps it's what we do not say and do that we are supposed to do. Or perhaps the sins that you struggle with are things that no one else can see. And your heart motivations, though you may look good outwardly, you're doing things for yourself and not for the Lord or others. Perhaps it's in your feelings, your affections, where again, you look good outwardly, but deep down inside you, there's bitterness or anger or selfishness. Perhaps it's even in our thoughts, where we look good externally, but we know we are harboring thoughts that are inconsistent with God's will and God's word. For you and your life, what are the sins that you most ongoing struggle with? At least our follow-up question, what is your view of those sins? When you think about those sin struggles, how do you respond? What is your perspective on those areas where you see yourself falling again and again and again? Now, friends, there's different ways that we can approach those ongoing sins in our life. Ideally, we would respond to what's called godly sorrow, where we feel brokenness over those sins. And we're broken particularly because we've offended God. And so we repent of those sins and we ask God to help us change and we repent of it before others if we've hurt them. But a lot of times, if we're honest, we have sorrow over sin, but it's not godly sorrow, it's worldly sorrow. We're embarrassed by our sin, or we're upset about the consequences and how that sin has hurt us, and so it's a self-focused sorrow, and friends, it's so humbling to realize that we can cry tears over our sin and not be repentant tears, and not be godly sorrow, sorrow because we're just upset of what it's done to us. And yet for others, or even us in times of our lives, there's times we just simply try to ignore those sin patterns. We've had those sin struggles so long, we just begin to think it's not so bad, or we begin to justify it and think of lies, of, oh, it only affects me, or it's not that bad, or we even justify it with Scripture, oh, God's going to forgive me, so it'll be okay, and our excuses go on and on. So friends, again, what are the sins that you most struggle with, and how do you process that? How do you view those sins? Now, that question is important for us where Peter goes next in 1 Peter chapter 3. Over the last several weeks, Peter has shown us an incredibly high calling for our Christian lives. Think about what we've seen just in the last three or four weeks. He's shown us this calling from God to think about others with a sense of common purpose, to think about others with humility, putting them before ourselves. He's commanded us to feel affections and compassion for one another. He's called us to pursue brotherly love, to give of ourselves for the good of other people. He's called us to not retaliate when we're wronged, even in how we speak about those situations. He's called us to bless and to bless those who have wronged us. He's called us to put off evil and to put on pursuing good. He's called us to seek peace and all the relationships with all of our might. And that's just been in the previous four verses. That is a difficult calling. And perhaps for some of you, the sins you struggle with are those things in this recent verses, if not things that perhaps we've seen already in these first three chapters of the letter. And Peter knows this is difficult. Peter knows living like this is incredibly challenging. So where we started last week, he grounded these commands in an Old Testament quote. 
We saw last week, we looked at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. He was quoting from Psalm 34 to show us from the Old Testament the same truth that he has been teaching about how we're to pursue living for Christ. We come to one last verse from that quote this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. And this is a continuation of that quote from Psalm 34. And it answers the question for us, why is it essential for us to pursue holiness? Why is it essential for you and I to care so much about becoming more like Christ and how we think and how we feel and what we say and in what we do? Why is it essential for us as God's people to pursue holiness? And verse 12 gives us that answer today. So as we read our text, be looking for why is it important for us to live like what we've been seeing in recent weeks. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, can I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version and We'll have the words on the screen for you also. Just one verse this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you use your word to sanctify us and grow us and change us to be who you want us to be. As we come to a challenging verse this morning once again, I pray, Lord, that you give us much grace to understand it, Lord, not just to understand it intellectually, but to sense the weightiness of this verse. And I pray your Holy Spirit would fill us and use your word today to grow us to be more of who you desire us to be. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So why is it essential for us to pursue holiness? I want to go and tell you the main idea of this text today and our message today. Here's what I want you to see from this verse this morning. Whether or not we seek God's grace to grow in holiness is a serious matter to God. Whether or not you and I as God's children seek God's grace to change, to grow in holiness, it is a serious matter to God. Why is it important for us to pursue growing in holiness and in righteousness and being Christ-like? Because our King, our Creator, our Redeemer sees our pursuit of holiness as something of great significance, something very serious to Him. In fact, as we'll see in our text this morning, it's so serious to God, He not only tells us, go pursue holiness, but He promises blessings for us that come with that pursuit And he gives strong warnings here if we fail to pursue holiness. It's so serious to God, there's blessings for the pursuit of it, and there's warnings for ignoring it. And for this is really important for us because in our culture, there's kind of a wrong view of God that sees God as more like the grandfather figure who just wants to bless you and hug you and love you. And if you mess up, he kind of winks at your sin. Oh, it's okay. Try harder next time. That's not the view of God that we see here in this text. Our personal holiness is very serious to God, and so it needs to be serious to us as well. Let's take that apart this morning. I want you to see the call to holiness in this verse. You may be thinking, well, I don't see the word in this verse. Where is it? And it's here in verse 9. Notice this first phrase, do not repay evil for evil. Sorry, back verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Now, notice that phrase, the righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, foundationally, To be righteous means we have a new standing before God. We are righteous because God has declared us to be righteous, not because we're good. None of us are ever declared righteous because we're good people. We're not. We are full of sin in our thoughts. We're full of sin in our affections. We're full of sin in our speech and in our actions as well. There's nothing good in us, but we are declared righteous because when Jesus died, our sin got put on him. His righteousness got applied to us. And so positionally, God the Father can declare us righteous because when he looks at us, he sees Christ. The term I've been using recently is we call that his saving grace, that he has saved us. He's changed our position, our status before him. That's what we just sang in that song just a minute ago, Judge of the Secrets. We sang, I will confess 
my righteousness, Jesus, must rest in you. That's a profound line, friends, because I cannot approach God thinking I've got it all together. I'm mostly good. I have no righteousness in myself. Our righteousness rests in Christ alone and it being given to us. Now, friends, that's the foundation for understanding what it means to be the righteous. But Peter means even more than that. He doesn't counter that. That's all true. But from that, he builds on that here. He means more than just our status. Because the reality that Peter's been showing us is when our status before God changes, our practical lives begin to change also. Think back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Told here in verse 19 that Christ has shed his blood for us. What does that do for us? Verse 18, he has ransomed us. He's rescued us not just from the penalty of sin. He's rescued us from the power of sin. So he says it's ransomed us from the feudal ways of our past, that our lives will be different now. And how are they different? Verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Our conduct, our lives, what we think, feel, say, and do, all change because we are bought by Christ. One of the authors I read this week said it so well. He said, new ways were bought for you by the blood of Jesus. Not just forgiveness for your old ways. Justification, that's the big word for God saving us. Justification leads not just to a new status of perfection in Christ, but also to a pattern of life in this world. Justification leads to real change. Friends, if we have that saving grace, if God declares us righteous, we will see a growing reflection of that righteousness in our lives because God not only saves us, he transforms us, he changes us. As Wayne Grudem, one of my favorite theologians, points out, this truth provides a needed corrective to the careless, half-hearted Christians of any age. It's a needed corrective because it's easy to be careless and half-hearted in our own sin. That's why I asked the question at the beginning, what are those sin patterns and how do we view it? It's so easy for us to become careless about our sins and to justify them or just ignore them or to feel sorry about them, mostly because of how they have hurt us. Yet the reality from God's word is if there's saving grace in our life, there will be transforming grace as well, which is the warning you've heard me say many times before, friends. If there's no transforming grace in your life, no growth in godliness, there was never saving grace to begin with. When we are declared righteous by God, that actually leads to a growth in living righteously. That's not perfection. That's not an instantaneous change, but it's a progression through our life as God step by step conforms us more and more to the image of Christ through his transforming grace. Now, what does that transformation include? Look back at verse 12. And notice that, that first word there, for. Now, when Peter quotes Psalm 34, Psalm 34 doesn't have the word for there. He inserts it here because he's making a point for us here that this righteous standing we have before God and this growing practical righteousness, he's connecting it to what he's just described, for. What's for doing is pointing us back to what he's just described. He's been describing for us what the life of the righteous look like, that those who are declared righteous by God have a growing desire to become what we've seen in these previous verses, people who seek peace, people who submit to authority, people who love and serve their families well, people who have thoughts and affections and words that build up other people. He's ultimately pointing us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 15, where he said, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in, there's that next word there, all your conduct. And what we think and what we feel and what we say and what we do, we're to be holy and all of that. Why? Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy, God says, for I am 
holy. And that raises a question for us. If our holiness is so serious to God, why is it such a big deal for him? Again, our culture seems to see God as one who is just okay with our sin, but why is holiness in Scripture so serious to God? And quite simply, because holiness is part of his character. Holiness is one of his attributes, part of his nature. It's not something peripheral to God. Holiness is at the core of who he is. He is a holy, perfect being in every way. I love Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. We have these creatures around God's throne worshiping him, and they repeat this attribute of God over and over. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That God is holy, and God loves holiness. And when he calls us and declares us righteous, his desire is for us to be holy as well, to reflect his holiness to the world, to reflect his character to the world, to worship him as we submit our lives to him. He calls us to pursue holiness because he himself is holy. And like we've seen over and over, that means putting off our old sinful ways. But we can't start there. We have to put on what Christ would do, to put on Christ-like actions. Now, this pursuit of holiness in our lives, this pursuit of becoming more Christ-like is so important to God. In our text today, back in verse 12, he gives us blessings, the promise of blessings, if we all pursue it. And he gives us a stern warning if we forsake it. So this is so serious to God that we reflect his holiness that in verse 12, he gives us a promise of blessings if we'll pursue it, and he gives us warnings if we ignore it. So what are the blessings that God promises here in verse 12? I want us to be real careful with this and clarify because this gets misconstrued very quickly. First of all, we need to realize that the blessings from God are grace gifts he gives to us. They're nothing that we deserve. This text is not teaching that if you will be holy, you'll get all these earthly rewards. That's not what this is about. We deserve nothing from God except for his wrath. We prayed that this morning. We have sung that this morning. You and I are sinners. We are not righteous any way, shape, form, or fashion in our souls. We deserve nothing from God but judgment. So anything we have from God that is good is a grace gift, not because of us. We can't bargain with God. Hey, God, I'm going to obey that command if you will. Whatever, God doesn't work that way. God is the one who's sovereign, not us. We have no, he does not reward us in the sense we don't bargain with him with our holiness. Rather, these blessings that we're seeing here in verse 12, blessings are his grace gift to help us pursue holiness. God promises blessings to us if we desire holiness. And those blessings are the very things we need in order to pursue that holiness. So what are the blessings God promises us? If in our hearts, we find a stirring, a desire to become more like Christ, to put off our old ways, to put on the new ways. God promises to bless. And what is the blessings? There's two here. The first one, the first blessing he promised us is his presence and help with us. God is showing us here in verse 12 that if we desire to live more like Christ, if we desire to put off our old ways and put on our new ways, he will pour out abundantly his blessings, particularly the blessing of his presence and his help with us. Look at this first phrase of verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean that God sees you. God sees everything. We know from Scripture that God is everywhere. We call that he's omnipresent. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. So if God is everywhere and sees everything, his eyes being upon you, if that's just he's seeing you, that would not be a special blessing. Rather, when God's eyes are on someone, it means he's giving them a special awareness of his presence, and he's giving them his help. When God's eyes are upon a person, he's giving them a special awareness of his presence with them, and he's giving them special help. The way I try to get my mind around this week, think back to when you were a child trying to learn to ride a bike. You remember those days, maybe a long time ago. 
And when you're trying to learn a bike and your parent says to you, I won't take my eyes off of you, what does that mean if you're the child on the bike? It means your parent's not sitting on the porch scrolling on their phone and watching you, oh, they fell again, maybe they'll get it next time. That's not my eyes are upon you. If you're the kid learning to ride a bike and your parent says my eyes are upon you, they're right next to you and they're running down that sidewalk chasing you while you're on the bike with their hand ready to put that stabling hand on those handlebars if you start to wobble. That's the image for us here. When, you, when a child is trying to learn to ride a bike, the parent saying my eyes are upon you means I am right there next to you my presence is here, and I'm ready to reach out and help you if you need help. Think about it as well. If a parent's watching their kids learn to swim, and the parent says, I won't take my eyes off of you. When that kid looks up from the pool, the parent's not off with a back turn to the pool, doing something else. The parent is on the edge of the pool or even in the water with their child. So if the kid starts to have trouble, they know their parent is right there to help them. And that presence of the parent gives that child confidence to do the hard work of learning to swim or to do the hard work of learning how to ride the bike because they know their parent is there and that help is right there. That that and so much more is what this image for us is. Look back at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God is calling us to desire holiness. God is calling us to pursue holiness. And he's saying, I will help you with that, that he will be right here with us, giving us his presence and giving us his help to do those hard things that he has called us to do. So the first blessing God promises us if we pursue practical righteousness is his presence to help us. But the second one is very closely related in that God also promises the blessing of answered prayers. He promises the blessing of answered prayers. Look at verse 12 again. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and here it is, and his ears are open to their prayer. Now what does that mean? It does not mean that if we just pursue holiness, we get everything we want when we pray. Okay, Lord, I obey the Ten Commandments today, so I want that new job and that new car. And God's going, okay, I told you I'll do it, I'll do it. That's not what this is saying here. God is not our servant to do whatever whims we ask for. This promise is actually much better than that. This, again, is the promise that if we will seek God's grace in prayer to pursue holiness, to live for him, he will be quick to hear and answer and help us. This is the promise as we run to God in prayer, saying, Lord, I am struggling to do these things. God runs to us to help us. So when temptation comes, God is saying, I'm here. Come talk to me about it. I will give you strength to overcome. When we fall into a temptation, God is saying, I already know you've fallen, but come talk to me about it in prayer. I will forgive you, and I will be freeing you from the power of this sin in your life. When we see areas where we need to grow in godliness, this is God inviting us, saying, I'm here. Come talk to me about it. I want you to be more Christ-like. Come find strength from me. So think back to the example of the kid learning to ride the bike or the kid trying to learn how to swim. If the kid is on the bike, and he's starting to fall, and he starts crying out, Mom, Dad, help, or the kid is in the pool going, I'm sinking, when he cries out, what does the parent do? The parent's ears are open to that cry. Why? Because the parent knows the voice. It's their child. The parent's already listening for it. If the kid is in the pool, the parent's already vigilant to know I'm listening out for that voice. If the kid is on the bike, the parent's vigilant to listen for their child's cry, and the parent is eager and glad to respond and help. That's exactly the picture that we're being painted for here. God's ears are open to our prayers as we cry out saying, Lord, help, I'm struggling to pursue holiness. God goes, I know I'm here to help. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us God is like. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. There we go. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15. We do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect, here it is, this is Jesus, has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So what do we do? Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ walked this earth. He understands every temptation that you feel. He understands. He's experienced temptation. He's resisted. And he says, I'm here to help. Come talk to me about it. Yet how much are we crying over the wrong things because of sin? How much are we ignoring our sin when we have an invitation from God himself to approach him and talk to him about our struggles? Friends, whether or not we seek God's grace to grow in holiness is a serious matter to God. And it's so serious to God that he's promised us the blessings of his grace of giving us his presence to help us do what he's called us to do. He's given us the promise of answered prayers so that we can find strength to do what he's called us to do, and that is to pursue being more like Christ. But friends, it's so serious to God, he also gives a serious warning here for those who reject holiness. If we ignore practical holiness, God responds very differently. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but, there's a whole different situation now, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's face is against those who do evil. Now, kind of like last week's text, this has been a frustrating part of the verse for me, because the scholars who I study on this have two very different ideas of what this means. And again, these are people who love the word of God and love the scriptures and are solid, but, they have, but there's two different ideas of what this means here. Now, some people say this phrase, those who do evil, this is a description of non-Christians. They're not talking about the church and us as believers. They're talking about people who do not know Christ. And their argument can be compelling. The Greek word here for those who do evil is the Greek word kakos. It's the same word used in other places in Scripture to, to describe those who are under the judgment of God for their sins. So, for example, Romans chapter 2, verse 9. This word evil in Romans 2, 9 is the same word we see here in 1 Peter. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, is an image of God's coming judgment. So this word is used in the context of those who do not know Christ. So I see their point. But other scholars say, no, 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 this applies to Christians as well. This is God's response to all sins, whether it's from a non-believer or from a believer. And friends, their argument can be compelling also. Peter has just warned believers back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, let him turn away from Evil, kakos, exact same word that's used a few verses later, and do good. So in verse 11, Peter tells believers, turn from the evil that is tempting you. And then he tells us here in just a, the very next verse, the Lord is against those who do evil. So they say, so no, look, he's using the same word about Christians here. It applies here as well. And that seems to be the pattern in other places in Scripture as well. For example, James chapter 3, verse 8. When James is writing to Christians, he says, no human being can tame the tongue as a restless evil. Same Greek word for evil here, full of deadly poison. And the reality is out of my mouth and your mouth at times, perhaps even this week, have come evil words. Colossians 3.5 describes it this way also. But put to death, this is to believers, a command from God, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, same word here, kakos, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, which is why then in Romans 7.19, the apostle Paul himself says, for I do not do the good I want, but the Kakos, the evil I do not want to do, is what I keep on doing. So these people would say, no, no, this is written to believers as well. So can I suggest, like last week, we don't have to pick and choose which this applies to? There's truth in both aspects of that here. Go back to verse 12 of our text. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Because God is holy, God hates sin, regardless of who commits 
that sin. Now, how God responds to sin is going to be very different, whether it's a believer or not a believer, but God still hates sin. If I sin, God is not any more okay with it than if a non-believer sin. God hates sin, period. So what does this mean for the non-believers, for the non-Christians? This is a terrifying image of judgment. When God turns his face against a non-believer, this is a turning for all eternity. They have sinned against God. They have offended God. And so they remain under his wrath. He removes the hope of eternity. He removes his blessings on them, and they are forever opposed by God. That is terrifying. That's an attribute of God's character we call his wrath. But friends, when we think about God's wrath, that's not a bad attribute. We don't have to apologize for that. God is so holy and perfect. Part of the good overflow of his holiness is he is a wrathful God and will punish every sin. So every sin will be punished. For those in verse 12 here who are declared righteous by God, It's not our sins got swept under the rug. It's not God winked at him. Every sin I've committed this week and every sin you've committed this week was nailed on the cross with Christ. That the sin was dealt with. God didn't overlook it. God didn't ignore it. Christ bore the penalty that you and I should have spent eternity in hell paying for. He's so holy, every sin is dealt with. But for those who are not declared righteous by God, they will have the just penalty for that sin and that will take an eternity in hell with God's face against them to pay for it. So for the non-believers, verse 12 is a terrifying image of judgment. But I believe there's an application for believers here too. This is not something we just get to write off and be like, oh, that's sad for them, I'm glad I'm okay. Yes, we rejoice, we're okay, but the face of the Lord being against those who do evil, for us as believers is a picture of God's discipline. It's a picture of God's discipline. This is not the only place in scripture that you have the image of God hating sin in believers' lives. For example, James chapter four, verse six, written to believers, but God gives more grace. I love that part of it. It says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there's a scary thought there that God says, I will oppose you if you continue with pride or whatever other sins in your life. Why would God oppose his own children when they sin? Quite simply, friends, because he loves them. God loves us too much and God loves other believers too much to see us in our sin and be like, I'm going to bless them in their sin. God in his love opposes us when we sin out of his love for us to lead us to repent and change. Now, we've seen it many times before, but it bears looking back at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11, because this shows us how God views our sin and what he does when we continue in sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him for... The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lived? Here it is, verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us, his children, for our good. That, so that, here's the result, so that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's the greatest understatement, I think, in Scripture. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, God loves us so much as his children that if we are persisting in unrepentant sin, God's not just going to pour out his blessing upon blessings to enable us to live that way. God loves us so much, he will oppose us, he will discipline us to bring us to repentance. 
Notice verse, go back to verse six of this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. God's opposing us is not his anger at us. Our sins have already been dealt with on the cross with Christ. But because he loves us, he disciplines, he opposes us in our sin because he hates sin and he loves us. Why does he do it? Verse 10, the last phrase there, he disciplines us for our good. It's good, it's not pleasant, but God opposes us in our sins and our unrepentant sins to bring about good for us so that we become more, what we're looking at today, more holy, that we might share his holiness. And then verse 11, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God loves us too much to let us persist in unrepentant sins, and so he will do all it takes to bring us back to a place of repentance or in our words today, back in verse 12 this morning, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And when it's us, the ones who are continuing in the evil, God opposes us out of discipline because he loves us to bring us back to Christ. Let's bring all that back together this morning, friends. Whether or not you and I as God's children seek God's grace to grow in holiness is a very serious matter to God. It's a serious matter to God, friends. And it's so serious that if you do not know Christ, the warning here from Scripture is that you are already under his wrath and will continue to be so unless you repent and turn to him. If that is you today, friends, you need to cry out to ask him to forgive you of your sins, to make you his own, to make you righteous in his sight, and to give you Christ's righteousness and to take your sin from you. That is your only hope. Otherwise, this is your eternal state of God's face being against you. But if you do know Christ because God has made you righteous, not because of anything in you, but because he put his affections on you, he now requires you to seek his grace to live out how he already sees you. He's already declared you righteous. Now he says, it's serious to me, though, that you now pursue being how I already see you. But he's not left you trying on your own. This is not a text, go try harder this week to be better. This is a text to run to those blessings he gives you to be like this. If you desire to grow in holiness, to cry out for these blessings, the promise of his presence, the promise of his help, the promise to answer prayers. And if you're going, honestly, Grady, I don't even desire it. He promises you to come to, to, he'll help with that if you'll come talk to him. If you're going, you know, I honestly don't want to be more holy. I kind of like my sin. And he's calling you to run to him and be honest and confess that to him and ask him to change your desires. But friends, the warning here is if we do not seek to do those things as his children, he will pursue us because he loves us too much to leave us there. So friends, in light of all that, since it's serious to God whether we seek his grace to grow in holiness, the question I want to leave us with is, is it serious to you? You think back to that opening question, what are those sins that plague your life the most and how do you respond? We see how God responds to it. He loves you too much to leave you lost in those sins. Is your, or your, your sin as serious to you as is to God? And are you as committed to desiring God's grace to change as God is and wanting to give that to you? Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. Thank you for showing us and reminding us that you alone are holy God, we confess this day that we have no holiness in and of ourselves. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We are wretched sinners who deserve nothing but your condemnation, nothing but your wrath, nothing but your punishment. But Lord, it's something that is only explained by your supernatural work of grace. You took us as sinners and you declared us righteous when there was nothing righteous in us. Lord, thank you seems so inadequate of words to say to you that you changed our status and declared us to be the righteous, the saints, the holy ones before you when there was nothing we did to earn that standing before you. Lord, we thank you that you've given us in your word your plan for us, or that you want us to pursue now living out how you already see us. You desire for us to grow in personal holiness and how we live each day at home and at work and with our friends. So we confess that we can't manufacture that. 
Lord, I can't do anything this week to stir my heart to want holiness. I can't do anything this week to make myself more holy, but you can. And so, Lord, for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters, Lord, we ask humbly today that you would give us hearts that feel towards our sin the way you feel towards our sin. Or in the places to where we have worldly sorrow, where we're sad of our sin, but it's because it's self-focused of how it's hurting us or how we feel. Lord, I pray that you would show us that this week and we would confess that as sin before you, even in how we're responding to sin. And you would break us of that this week and you would work in us godly sorrow where we grieve that we've offended you, the Holy One. Lord, for those areas where we've been justifying our sins or ignoring our sins or just trying to write them off and pretending they're not so bad, would you forgive us for that? This week and help us see the seriousness of those sins that we so easily tolerate and bring us to a place of godly sorrow over them, a place of repentance over those as well, Lord. Lord, we ask today that you would give us your blessings, the blessings of your presence, the blessings of answered prayer, and that, Lord, we would not try to become more Christ-like. We would not try to put off the sin and put on righteousness by mere effort. Lord, we know that that won't work, that our determination will never get us there. So we ask for much grace this week, to long for your presence, to long for your help, and I pray that would show in our prayers. That this week we find ourselves praying in new and deeper and different ways because we're crying out for these blessings that enable us to do what you've called us to do. So Lord, this week I pray as you remind us of this verse and these truths, you would free us from any self-dependency. We rely simply on you, your Holy Spirit, your word, the Christian community around us to transform us to be who you've desired for us to be. Lord, we know that transformation and growth can be painful at times, yet we know it's good. So I pray we not shy away from it this week. We cry out to you to change us and mold us to be who you desire us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's fitting this morning we're going to end with a song before the throne of God above. We want this to be our response to God's word this morning, our act of worship to him. To think about the lyrics we're going to be singing. We're going to sing before, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. That's what we should say about it. We're thinking about Christ. He is our righteousness. I have no righteousness myself. You have no righteousness, but he does. So let's behold him, the one who is our righteousness. We're going to sing upward. I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This powerful reminder of how we are declared righteous, that Christ took it for us. But then ultimately the song reminds us as well of the hope we have that God's not calling us to live for him in our strength. We're about to sing, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So friends, if you know Christ, let the song fill your heart with thankfulness and what you have in him. Let it fill your heart with hope. Let it remind you this morning as we close out today of the source for the ability to pursue him is his grace given to us. Let's worship him together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, and I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me let's depart, no tongue can bid
about that talk to him about that ask him to show himself you'll start right there take a minute just thank him if you know that you're declared righteous before him Now, would you take a minute and ask him for these blessings we've seen the blessings of his presence the blessings of his help the blessings of answered prayer would you ask him to pour those out in you this week so that you can grow in pursuing him? And lastly, whatever those sins were that first came to mind when we began the service and ask, what are the sins you struggle with? Take a minute if you've not already done so and confess those to God and ask him for his strength, his help, his grace to find transformation. Lord, how sweet your forgiveness is, right, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, 
give us mercy and grace. I pray this week for myself and these brothers and sisters that we will find a deeper sense of awe, that we have received mercy, that we've been declared righteous, a deeper sense of gratitude and thankfulness to you for our salvation, and a greater longing to practically live out how you see us. So Lord, in those areas where we've been ignoring our sins, convict us this week. In the areas where we've been showing worldly sorrow, I pray for brokenness. And Lord, I pray where we've been experiencing godly sorrow, that we would see the fruit of righteousness produced in it this week. Lord, sanctify us this week. Grow us to be who you desire us to be for your glory and for our joy, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon ahead.